2: Buzz Kaysen has led an incredibly storied musical life. He began his career in the 1950s in the band The Casuals, who are credited with being one of the first rock and roll bands in Nashville. The Casuals became Brenda Lee's backing band and he toured with Jerry Lee Lewis and partied with Elvis. He moved to Los Angeles and wrote hit songs for Jan and Dean and many others in the 1960s. Then he moved back to Nashville and formed the first recording studio in the Berry Hill neighborhood. There he recorded with legends like Dolly Parton, the Oak Ridge Boys, Olivia Newton-John, Roy Orbison, Leon Russell, Merle Haggard, the Doobie Brothers, the Faces, and the legendary Elvis. In fact, he helped start and co-wrote the songs on Jimmy Buffett's first two albums. He has contributed vocal session work, For Elvis, Kenny Rogers, Chris Christopherson, Ronnie Hawkins, Roy Orbison, Lee Von Helm, John Denver, and he was the voice of Alvin on several Chipmunk records. A member of the Rockabilly Music Hall of Fame, he continues to write, record, and release great albums, including Troubadour Heart, Record Machine, and Passion, in the last six years. Here to talk about the amazing stories of some of his songs, we are thrilled and honored to have the legendary Buzz Kaysen with us on Backstory Song. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today I have with me Buzz Casen, the one and only legend, Buzz, I've had the chance to read your biography, The Everlasting Love, Living the Rock and Roll Dream, and also watch your documentary, Barry Hill from Creative Workshop and Beyond. And I have been blown away by your career and the amazing stories that you tell in your biography.
3: Well, thanks, Billy. It's good to be with you, man. And uh, like you say, I'm a legend in my own backyard. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, you started with the casuals. You were the backing band for Brenda Lee. You were the original rockabilly band of Nashville when the the rock scene was just starting. Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and those guys in Memphis, sort of across state. And you guys at the casuals were the legendary group of uh, Nashville. And I guess that's where... You wrote your first song, My Love Song for You, or the one of your first recorded songs? That's
3: right. Well, Doug, I wrote my first poem in the first grade when I was five years old. I, I started out, I've been around so long, they didn't even have kindergarten in those days. My mother slapped me in school at five, and uh, they had a poetry contest, and I, I wrote a poem that won. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Once there was a bunny, and he was very funny he found an egg in a nest, so he put it in his vest. (laughs) And that got me a blue ribbon. I thought, hey, man, I may make it as a poet one day. (laughs) But anyway, I grew up in a neighborhood, uh, Englewood out in East Nashville, and hooked up with the casuals. And Richard Williams and I wrote that first song for our first record. It was probably the first song that I finished. You know, I, I had piddled around with writing a few, but I wasn't very good at guitar, and Richard played piano pretty well, so he came out there on RD Avenue and banged on my old upright piano, and we wrote that song for the casuals.
2: Where'd you record that?
3: Well, we were mentored by a DJ, a very well-known DJ at that time, Noel Ball, who had a Saturday showcase TV show three hours every Saturday afternoon on the ABC affiliate of all things. It was before the wide world of sports and everything. That's where I met the guys in the band, and Richard was the singer already. And uh, their manager, kept, I kept saying, "Man, let me sing with them." He said, "Well, they got a singer; they don't need a singer." <laughs> 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 I, I said, "Well, you know, we could do some duets and stuff." So anyway, I I wormed my way into the band, and Noel Ball, who hosted the TV show, was also a top-rated nighttime disc jockey on WSIX here in nashville and he said hey why don't we go up in the studio and record and in those days back in the 40s and 50s radio stations of any size had a a live studio because they did church broadcasts they did country and and, uh, bluegrass and stuff like that they did live shows they still had their studio and so we snuck in after midnight and um recorded Two Sides, My Love Song for You, and Help Me, which uh, Richard and I wrote both of them, and put it out on a label called New Sound, which was owned by Noel and another Buzz, Buzz Wilburn. And then Noel got Randy Wood to pick up the master and put it on Dot. So we were on the same label with Pat Boone there briefly. And it was a regional hit. We were becoming very popular with the kids in Nashville, mainly due to the television show and everything. So.
2: You were like the teen idols of your day, right? You guys were teenagers when you started this whole thing, and you caught the rock and roll buzz. And
3: Yeah, I was 16 when I joined the band, and we were very popular. Our uh, cavern was a theater called the Donaldson Theater out in the outskirts of town, and that's where the screaming girls were and everything. That's where we got a taste of that. Then we got on a tour with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. We started opening shows for him. We went out on the road in the summer of 57. I graduated from high school and went right straight on the road at age 17.
2: It's a pretty wild story. I highly recommend your book. If my listeners want a a good read, Everlasting Love, my favorite part is not, you know, you toured with the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis, but you had a week in Hollywood where you partied with Sammy Davis Jr., the late, great Ricky Nelson, and the late, great Elvis Presley. (laughs) That was like a an amazing trio of parties that you guys.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. We were we were on tour with Brenda on the West Coast and Lamar Fike, who was one of the original Elvis Mafia. He would work for Elvis until they would get mad at each other, and Elvis would fire him. And when he would, Doug Albert and Brenda's great manager would. He liked to have Lamar around because he's a big man, big guy. And he'd walk in front of the crowd and say, okay, move out of the way. Here she comes. And she'd be a little bitty girl walking behind this great big guy. And so anyway, Dorsey Burnett, who was also on the tour, and Lamar had a bet with each other that he couldn't introduce us to any stars while we were in Hollywood. He said, okay, we'll start out tonight. So we were coming down from, I think it was the tour that I turned 21 on. It'd been about 1960, uh, something like that. We were coming into San Francisco, and that's where we met Sammy Davis Jr. Because we stopped at the Mark Hopkins Hotel, and he got on the house phone and called and said, Sammy, got some guys down here would like to meet you. And they were having a big party up there. And we went up, and Sammy was really nice to us. It was really a fun experience. And Then the next night, this is all part of the bet now. You know, he took us to Rick and Nelson's house. Ricky was nice to us. He had a real small apartment up in Hollywood Hills or somewhere. And it was pretty much, I guess, at the peak of all his hit records. Very nice, very nice to us. And I always thought it was the second night, but Richard Williams reminded me, he said, Oh, no, but I said it was the same night. We went on out to Elvis's house for a later party and we jammed with him. He played piano and said, you ever think about how many songs go like this? And he started playing from C to A minor to F to G, like, Good Night, My Love, and, Sincerely. Oh no, sincerely. And we all joined in and sang parts, and did some gospel songs, and had a big time. That was when he lived in Bel Air on Perugia
2: Way. Do you remember what gospel songs you were singing that night?
3: Oh, I think I Saw the Light, and uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, stuff like that. And what was funny was Richard and I had a record in the charts under the name of the Statues, what they call the Statues of Liberty, because we were on Liberty Records, and uh, we had a version of Blue Velvet that was had hit the bottom of the charts, you know. And I want you to sing that for. I said, "Look, I'm not singing for Elvis Presley. I don't care what you say. Look, don't put us on the spot like that, man." Sure enough, he got in there, and after we had fun jamming, he said. Elvis, the boys, they got a record out. He said, oh, yeah, I'd like to hear it. So, man, we had to sing for Elvis, you know, but uh, it was a rare occasion. And then it was something very interesting. He said, uh, you know, I've been getting my, my songs from opera, and he played some opera version of Caruso or somebody, and then he played Return to Sorrento, and and then he, he put the acetate, the dove, on and played us his version of Surrender which was, I think, I think, a follow-up to It's Now or Never, I believe. We were probably some of the first people outside of the record company to hear the, his next record, but he was very friendly, and it was, uh, it was quite a wild night.
2: Let's hone in on some of your first work was for Jan and Dean. You wrote two songs that were recorded and charted Tennessee and Popsicle.
3: Yes, well, there was a little studio downtown on Broadway there's a famous bar uh, now called Tootsie's at that time it was called mom's, but there was a little old studio up above the bar. I was hanging out there. I don't remember what I was there for. And I met Bobby Russell first time we had met and he was from the other side of the tracks. He was from kind of the uppity part of town. <laughs> I remember he looked real cool and he had a black overcoat on and everything. He looked down at me and said, you're right. You write songs. I said, yeah, I wrote. I figured I'd written one half of one song. <laughs> I figured I'd qualify. He said, well, let's, let's write something. So we went out to uh, Green Hills area of Nashville, out the Hillsborough Road, and we liked Jan and Dean. You know, you mentioned us being a rockabilly band, the casuals, but we really were an R&B band. I told somebody we thought we were black until we looked in the mirror. <laughs> we, we did almost all black music, Bo Diddley, James Brown, Hank Ballard, the Midnighters, and all that. But anyway, Bobby and I we wrote this silly song, <laughs> and, and it was called Tennessee. And Gary Walker, who was a wonderful gentleman who was our mentor, he said, "Look, let's put this out." So, Paul Coyne, who had been in charge of Decca Records before Owen Bradley took over, had started his own label after he left Decca, called Tide. It was named after his son. And they called us the Todds on Todd Records. And we had this little demo of uh, Tennessee. And Gary, some way or another, got it to Lou Adler and Snuff Garrett, who were producing Jan and Dean, and they cut it. So the first song we wrote hit the Billboard charts. And we thought, hey, man, this is easy. We, we wrote one song, and it hit. And then we followed it up with Popsicle. Popsicle wasn't released for a few years. I, it may not have come out until '60. I'm not sure what year Popsicle came out, but it did better. I think it got in the top 20. When I started out as a kid making my own living, I started out to support myself from about 12 years old. I pushed a Popsicle wagon out there in Englewood, and uh, I made enough money to buy my first car at at age 14. I saved up 200 bucks one summer. (laughs) We had some experience in the Popsicle
2: world, you know, Well, is Popsicle a double entendre song? Uh, No. No. It's a clean song. It's about
3: my summertime jobs. Got me working real hard, relaxed afternoon, sitting out in the yard. Just me and my baby, and we're holding hands, and then pop, ding-a-ling, here comes the Popsicle, man. Popsicle, pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa. We always had to get the pa-pa-pa's in there, you know.
2: Now, there is no sexual connotation in this song.
3: No, no. That's wild. Get your mind out of the gutter. I know.
2: I'm in the gutter on this one. I apologize for that. I thought you guys had your tongue in cheek on this Yeah, No,
3: it was was clean cut, all American, rock and roll.
2: That went to 21 on the charts, Popsicle, and Tennessee peaked at 69. Yeah. And that was Jan and Dean. And I guess, unfortunately, they got in that car wreck and their career didn't go as far as they would like.
3: Yes, I became friends with Jan. I worked at Liberty Records from 62 to 64, helping to snuff Garrett out producing. And Jan and I, we were running to each other at the record company. And one evening at the United Recorders down there on Sunset Boulevard, we were in the hallway chatting. And this little girl comes up. I remember she had dirty feet and was kind of ratty looking a little, but she was cute. She came up and she said, hey, guys, guess what? I said, Sonny's going to record me. And it was Cher. Ah. (laughs) Jan and I looked at each other like, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, sure. Anyway, Son and Cher used to come up to the office and visit with Don Blocker, who was our A&R boss there. Kind of knew them just slightly.
2: So you and Bobby Russell, talk to me about that co-writing partnership. I mean, you were more than just co-writers. You actually became business partners in the music publishing business.
3: Bobby was just coming into his own as a great lyricist, a great Songcraft, a great writer, and from the moment we met, we had a dream of one day having our own publishing. We idolized Don Kushner and Al Nevins, who had all done music, Neil Sedaka, Carole King, and and all those folks up there. Then we idolized them the way they got cuts, you know, and had their own publishing. But Bobby was signed to a company, and we didn't co-write much for that. But later on, in, in '67. We had a brief period in there where we wrote for Bill Justice, the great arranger and the guy that recorded the great hit instrumental, "Raunchy." We worked for him for a while, and he moved to California to become an arranger out there. And he said, you guys need to meet Fred Foster. And so I went out and talked to Fred, and I had never met him. He produced all the Roy Orbison records, kind of discovered Dolly. He was a great, great record man, Hit monument records. And we formed a company with him, Rising Suns Music and Records. Matt Gayden and I wrote, at at that period of time, in 67, we wrote Everlasting Love, which came out by Robert Knight on our label on Rising Suns Records. We were kind of off to the races as publishers, but we still had partners. We had Fred Frost and Jack Kirby, his partner. The deal kind of fizzled out, and we asked for our release from there, and we formed Russell Kaysen Music. We immediately had a hit. Bobby wrote The Joker Went Wild for Brian Hyland, which was, I don't know whether you can look that up or not, but it was a pretty good-sized hit record.
2: Yeah, Top 40 in 1966.
3: Yes, yes. So we were kind of off to the races, had our own little office. And then in sixty-eight, Bobby came. Within two weeks, he wrote two of the, big standards of the 60s, Honey, which was a hit by Bobby Goldsboro, and Little Green Apples, which was launched by Roger Miller, and it was a huge pop hit by O.C. Smith, and over 200 versions on each one of those songs. And it was in those days where you, you sold a lot, of, a lot of sheet music and albums, and every, everybody would record the hits in those days. Everybody from Robert Goulet to Sinatra to whoever would cover it, if you had a big hit-hop song.
2: Yeah, well, Little Green Apple was Song of the Year at the Grammys in 1968 and was a particular favorite of Frank Sinatra.
3: That's right. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful song. That I was the first person to hear it outside of... Well, Bobby may have played it for his wife if they weren't fighting at the time.
2: <laughs> that was Vicki Lawrence who recorded The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia? Yeah, but
3: or, that, that wasn't his wife at the time.
2: Oh, okay. That was before Vicky. Okay. And the and the Vicky didn't last too long either.
3: No, no, because he we had a hit record on Bobby called Fourteen Thirty Two Franklin Pike Circle Hero. It was Roger Miller sounding song. And so Bobby was doing a couple of T V shows in California. He met Vicky. He met Vicky Lawrence and they got married. So that kind of ended our partnership so long about nineteen seventy is when I Moved out to Berry Hill and started Creative Workshop. And we started our individual publishing companies at that time.
2: Let's talk about Everlasting Love from 1967. This is obviously one of the most legendary songs of all time. Eventually went to number one for Gloria Estefan, but in 67 was done for the first time by Robert Knight. That's right. And you wrote this with Mac Gaden.
3: That's right. And when we had Rising Suns Records, we would request a budget from Fred Foster. He was our backer. And uh, Mac had been acquainted with Robert. He was a young black singer from here in Franklin, Tennessee, where I'm sitting right now. He was in a band called the Fair Lanes. And one night, we all played fraternities parties a whole lot. And he was up, I believe, at Swanee at the university up there. And he heard this voice sing, and he, he went down to hear Robert, and he said, man, one of these days I'm going to write you a number one song. Mac said, man, we need to record Robert. So we got a budget for him. And those days you recorded four songs on a three-hour session. That way you would have two singles, A and a B side, And we needed one more song. Mac was over. It was out in West Nashville, where I lived at the time, and we sat down to write it. And Mac had these two distinct melodies and I said man any way you can hook them together as one song that would be cool because if you know anything about everlasting love it's two separate hook sections it's the hearts go astray and then it's open up your eye and they're in two different keys he said sure I can do that and it's I said well put it down he said well I've got to go the wife's got dinner waiting I said well I'll put some kind of a lyric to it and we'll go for it tomorrow night we had a 10 p.m. session that next night, and we put it on, and and if I'm not mistaken, it was the last song on the session. When we started it, everybody just lit up. Everybody was worn out and tired and everything, but uh, we had a great array of musicians. We had Norbert Putnam on bass, had Pig Pig Robbins on piano, Mac Gaden was on guitar, and we had live horns, and myself and Carol Montgomery sang the backgrounds, and it was uh, Brent Mayer's first master session, who later on became the great producer of the Juds, and was also the chief engineer at Creative Workshop later on. Robert's record just took a long time to break. I don't know, you know, what the sales figures on it were. I think something around 400,000 or something because it just sold on and on and would break in one area and and then fall down and break in another one. That's why it never charted real high because it, the impact wasn't in unison with each other. So. And then it got covered in England by a group called Love Affair and went number one over there.
2: Yeah, went all the way to 13 in the U.S. charts, 14 on the R&B and the Robert Knight version and 40 in the U.K. And then the Love Affair, which that video I highly recommend to my listeners. is really fun to watch. And I went to all the way to number one. So tell me what it was like writing with Mac. He was young in his career then, right? Well, you guys were both young, I guess. Although you'd been in the business for a decade at this point.
3: Yeah, yeah. I was already a veteran, but Mac had played on uh, J.J. Cale's Crazy Mama. He played that wah, wonderful wah slide guitar. He's known all over for his slide playing. But when we write, he plays a set of chords and maybe hums a melody, and the lyrics just jump out of them for me. And then we come up with counter melodies and it's wonderful writing with him. And in fact, let me fast forward to right now. And we have out a, a record called Come Along, which uh, myself and Parker and Mac, and it's it's just out now, you know. And uh, it, it was it was like renewing an old friendship. We got together and wrote several new songs. But anyway, writing with Mac has just always been magical, just been special. We come from the same R and B backgrounds. In fact, first time I met Mac was down at Ernie's Record Mart on Third Avenue in Nashville, which was one of the huge mail order. Uh, record stores in the nation, along with Randy Records and, and Buckley's, we had a communication musically to begin with. So it's always made it fun for us to be writing together.
2: So Everlasting Love is one of the most incredible love songs. Wedding song, Yeah, I think it's probably in the top 100 wedding songs, quite frequently played there. Great dance number, covered by many bands. Tell me about the lyrics. Was this based on anything that was going on in your life? I was married
3: at the time, and there might have been some underlying problems, but later on we did get divorced, but hearts go astray, leaving hurt when they go. I went away just when you needed me, so filled with regret. I come back begging you, forgive, forget, where's the love we once knew? And then the course opens up to open up your eyes, then you'll realize, here, stand with my everlasting love. He's declaring his love for this person, and what's interesting is On the second verse, when Mac left, I was pretty tired, and I I worked on the lyric. I always say, well, maybe that hook came from the Bible, from my Christian ways of Jeremiah back in the Bible where it says, Yeah, I loved you with an everlasting love. I don't know. We didn't write a second verse to it. We just ood it. Whenever I do it live at writer shows, I have the audience Ooh, along and mo, it's, it's a beautiful sound. It's, and they just. Ooh. But when Rachel Sweet and Rick Smith recorded it in the 80s, I think it went top 20, probably on CBS Records, I think. But they came up with a second verse, which we approved. Instead of oohing it, they, they sang the second verse. And I don't know whether you, 2 later on when they did it, I don't know whether they did a second verse or not. I know they, Bono had the words kind of messed up. Yeah, I, I guess he was doing it from memory, but we sure didn't argue with him on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, he didn't ask for permission to change lyrics. He just went ahead and did it. Oh,
3: they, just, they just went on and did it. Yeah.
2: And, you, and you were fine with it, huh?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was more like just, just going from memory of hearing the song probably over there in the UK somewhere.
2: Yeah, probably on the jukebox from the Love Affair version. Be my so, guess. yeah. What's your favorite version out of all of them? Or are they like your children? You like them all?
3: Well, it's still Robert Knight. It's just something magical in it. It's a slower version. The Carl Carlton version, of course, was the biggest single here in the States, Million Seller. It was recorded right here at Creative Workshop at my studio. I got to sing on it also. Papa Don Schroeder produced it. I still lean towards Robert's version being my favorite we had elements in it that were neat musically and and his voice just was so tender and so soulful and, and everything it was great later on mac and i had a hit with robert in england in 74 called love on a mountaintop I, I had the uh good fortune if you want to call it that of touring with robert in england in those days
2: So I always ask my artists if there's any song that they've written and any voice that they would like to sing that song. And I'm going to ask you that late in this episode, but I would love to hear a hip hop version of Everlasting Love. I would love to hear a modern DJ update this song because this song has charted in four decades and we need to get a fifth decade buzz for you of Everlasting Love in the modern vernacular of hip hop and rap, because I think it would work.
3: We have recorded, once again, me and my son Parker have produced a, a young man named Brooks Forsyth, who's from Boone, North Carolina. And he came up with the idea. He wrote most of his songs. On We did one album with him on our independent label. We've been working on this one for about a year, and he said, man, I'd like to take a shot at Everlasting Love. And I thought, well, gosh, he's he's more of an Americana-style artist. But we came up with a neat arrangement on it. I'll send it to you. It's not hip-hop, but it's got all the energy, all the elements, all the good features of Everlasting Love. And it even has a banjo and a fiddle on it. But they play into the arrangement just beautifully, you know. It's pretty unique. We're hoping it'll be the one that'll break through for this decade.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it needs to be charting this decade. Gloria Estefan, of course, took it to number one on the dance chart in 1995.
3: Yeah, Gloria just gave Everlasting Love a great boost because her version of it hit in so many different countries, and she had a Spanish version, and she had, on the album, I think there was four different mixes that they did of Everlasting Love. So we got credit for four different cuts. On on that album, she had her cut, Emilio's cut, I think their son's cut, and then a a radio mix, you know. Got to meet Emilio, he and Gloria own a hotel in Vero Beach, Florida. And me and my wife were trying to find somewhere to sneak off to. She said, let's let's go to Emilio's hotel. So we went and, and we got to meet him and his daughter were there and it was a great place. Don't ask me the name of it, but Estavilla, I mean, whatever. <laughs> anyway, it's in Vero Beach, but a great, great beachside hotel. But um, he said, that's Gloria's favorite song, you know.
2: <laughs> oh, really? That's her favorite. That's wonderful.
3: Yeah, that album was recorded by Turn the Beat Around, was her favorites of the 70s. It was a playlist of her favorite songs, and that, and that was one album. So we got extremely lucky on that.
2: So I want to talk about another song that you wrote, which is called Soldier of Love. And this was recorded by the Beatles in July of 1963. And it was on Pop Go the Beatles on the BBC over there in 63. And was, I think, for our contemporary listeners, recorded by Pearl Jam on the, I guess, sort of a B side. No one does a A and B side of The Last Kiss album, where they kind of covered some songs from the earlier era that have this romantic emotionalism to it. and But your version was recorded by Arthur Alexander. Tell me about Soldier of Love.
3: Well, the DJ I mentioned a while ago who was the mentor of the Casuals was Noel Ball. And we had a guitar player, Tony Moon, who was quite a songwriter himself. And he was a guitar player for the Casuals we had met tony at the brooklyn paramount when richard and i and bobby watts had gone up to sing at the paramount with brenda for one of murray the K's christmas shows and tony was in a group called dante and the evergreens who had out a version of alley oop and he said man i'm starving in this band I said we're not working said said well we're looking for a guitar player if you want to come to nashville and he moved down there and Anyway, Noel Ball came to us and he said, Hey, if you guys want to write a song for Arthur, he always talked very proper all the time, so if you want to write a song for Arthur, I'll record it. And so we went out to Meade, which is a fancy session of Nashville, but Tony had rented a guest house out there, little small room, and we got together out there and wrote we called it Lay Down Your Arms to begin with. And um we presented to Noel. He said, yeah, I'll cut it. And they, and they cut it over to Quonset Hut, the most famous studio on the Music roll, which became Owen Bradley's studio. It was more like a B-side because there was a Barry Man song called Where Have You Been on the flip side. And neither one of them really charted very well, but there was a lot of respect for the song. And it became just a kind of an underground cult type song people would know and marshall crenshaw recorded it on his warner brothers album i think it was the only outside song that marshall did we didn't realize that the beatles had recorded it at the bbc the kids were bootlegging those shows on cassettes and uh, that's what led capital records to to buying the uh the, all of those songs and, and all those cuts. And,
2: it was released in the aftermath of John Lennon's murder, right, in the 1980s and that's when people kind of discovered it because it was just a bootleg, I guess, off of the BBC prior to that. Yeah, and, and John
3: Lennon sings lead on it, which kind of gave me chills when I heard it.
2: So the first time you hear it, Buzz, where, where were you? Like, When was it?
3: Tony Moon, my co-writer, called me and he said, listen to this. And he, I heard this scratching record, and he put it on, it was Arthur Alexander. Uh, lay down your arm. Real laid-back Southern boy. I said, well, that's just Arthur singing our song. What's the big deal? He said, yeah, man, but listen to this. And he played, lay down your He played the Beatles singing. And I said, can that be who I think it is? He said, it sure as hell is. <laughs> What had happened, there was a young country singer who collected all kinds of music, Melinda K. Lance, who now works for the great Ray Stevens in merchandise and everything. But anyway, she had found these, this cut on a cassette, and uh, that was it Was in 1980, you know, when we heard it for the first time.
2: That's wild.
3: So, uh, but it, it had been around since 62, floating around, and uh, we never heard it.
2: So Arthur Alexander is someone who a lot of people don't know, and he recorded the first version of this, is that correct?
3: That's right, yeah. Arthur had the first hit to come out of Muscle Shoals called You Better Move On, and uh, recorded Rick Hall and uh, Fame Studios. He was our godfather, man. He was a laid-back, nice, sweet person. Noel Ball helped get the record on Dot, And so he got his foot in the door to produce Arthur, and that's how the Soldier of Love session came about. He also wrote Anna, which the Beatles had recorded. Anna's a great song, and Need a Shot of Rhythm and Blues. I don't know whether the the Stones cut that or the Beatles. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I went on Spotify and I listened to Arthur's version of Soldier of Love and. I just was so captured by his voice that I just let a whole Arthur Alexander station play for me for the whole afternoon. I encourage everybody to listen to this.
3: What a great voice. Skipping way ahead, Tom Douglas and I wrote Love's the Only House. We were working on a a singer-songwriter album for him and coming up with some songs and, uh, We had this one idea, and I can't even remember what it was, but we kept kicking it around and kept beating it to death. Finally, we were just frustrated one day, and he started just playing this kind of Mexican beat thing, and I said, man, I love that. He said, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, well, let's put it on tape, man, and write something to it. So we wrote Love's the Only House, and we couldn't get it recorded at first, Well, first of all, I said, I think it needs a bridge, and actually recorded it and inserted it into the demo. We had one producer that sort of liked it, but Tom went down to the um, Sony Tree Music down on the row, and they have the Fire Hall, which a lot of folks write songs in. It's an an old Fire Hall. that has been converted to writer rooms and a little studio, and he cut the demo with Rick Schnelle down there. And, man, I mean, he. I said, I said, if we pick the tempo up on this thing, I believe we can get it cut. And sure enough, it, it came out magical. It just came out wonderful. Tom always sings his demos. He said he's never had a cut he didn't sing on. So.
2: But Martina McBride turned it into a hit, right? Uh, That's right. Off the yeah. demo?
3: Yeah. yeah. Everybody wanted it. Tim McGraw's producer had called me and, and I said, well, it's too late. I said, they've already put a hold on it. Martina McBride has. You know, Paul Worley was a, was a big Tom Douglas fan. He had recorded his first hit called Little Rock. He produced that record. They actually wanted me to sing background on it, but I was out of town. I, I couldn't make the session. But Tom played the harmonica on it, which is just a two note thing. They had called Dilbert McClinton in to play on the record. And Paul, the producer, said something's just not right. It just doesn't sound like the demo. I said, get whoever played on the demo in here Try him, and it turned out it was Tom, so he played on the demo. And then Martha Tina, since it's just a two note solo, so she pulls out a little harmonica and plays it. I don't know whether she still does, but she did. But a very moving song, went number two in the country charts. Seemed like there was one station that held out on us, but uh, had a beautiful video to it.
2: Well, the song tells a story and the video tells a story. It's a really good combination of storytelling, songwriting, which lends itself to a better video. Is this story at all based on personal experience or just someone you knew? Or is this just you being a generalist songwriter?
3: It really just came out of our minds, out of our sensitivity and care for human condition. You know, that's that's pretty much... What it's about, you know, love's the only house that can take away all the pain in the world, which is true, you know, and uh, it was kind of a spiritual experience.
2: Yeah, it's a great song. You write great love songs, Buzz, I got to say. Thank you. Another one is Timeless and True Love.
3: Yes, I'm really pleased with that song that was recorded by the McCarter sisters for Warner Brothers. There was two Great songwriters, friends of mine, Austin Roberts and Charlie Black. When we set out to write, we wrote these traditional feeling songs. They weren't really the commercial, bro-country, whatever you call it, rocket and country things that were happening. And once again, the, the producer Paul Worley comes into play, and he loved timeless and true love. And I think it may have gone to number five or something. They had three little girls came down from East Tennessee, from up in Sevierville, the sisters, and. They had the big hair and they were cute girls and everything was moving into kind of more of a slick era in the country still then and they might have been a little too country for Nashville. I don't know, but they didn't last too long around here. But they were charming and sang that song beautifully.
2: Yeah, the song has a beautiful fiddle in it, which I guess wasn't as contemporary, but it stands out to me.
3: Yeah, it's got a great sound. And then later on Jenny Kendall, who, who was part of the father and daughter duo, the Kendalls, was doing her solo album. This probably meant 10 years ago, but she was reaching out to different artists to do duet, duets with her, and so she had contacted Alan Jackson, and Alan said, sure, Jeannie, I'd love to cut with you. And said, and I've got a song I'd love to do with you, and it was Timeless and True Love. They did a great job of it, a duet. Alan recorded his version of it, and then she did her version of it. His never came out. i beg big Joe Galanti. I, I tried to get RCA to put it out, but he really sang it nice. It wasn't in that just that straight country feel. He had kind of a folk feel about him. But anyway, it's a special song. When I do my songwriter shows, it, it goes over real well.
2: I love this one line in this. My love is no less tender, born of fire and steel, and the world could never change the way I feel.
3: Yeah, I've got to give that to Charlie Black. I'm pretty sure Charlie came up with that line. That always blew me
2: away. Oh, really? You're writing with a guy like Charlie Black and he comes up with that. Is it like You just know that's going in the song. You're like, that's it.
3: You know it right away. <laughs> There's no turning back on that.
2: So, Buzz, you wrote a song, A Million Old Goodbyes, which Mel Tillis recorded. And this is a breakup song. So. Tell me about where this one came from, because it's different than your love songs.
3: Well, this was written as kind of a little mini project with my co-writers, Bobby Russell and Steve Gibb, both who have passed on since then. Of course, Bobby Russell, we talked about before, had written Honey and Little Green Apples and The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. And Steve Gibb was a kid that I discovered with the help of some other songwriters who wrote She Believes in Me. The biggest song I ever published, recorded, of course, by Kenny Rogers. And uh, we had talked, we said, well, let's us three try to write. So, and
4: though. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? (laughs)
3: Those days in Brentwood, Tennessee, out at the corner of Franklin Road and Old Hickory Boulevard, there was a restaurant. It was kind of a nightclub-ish kind of a a restaurant. I can't remember the name of it right now, but anyway, we met out there, and both of these boys were healthy drinkers, (laughs) and uh, they could put it away. I mean, I couldn't keep up with them, so we went through a couple of bottles of wine, and I said, hey, guys, we're supposed to be writing tonight, so let's go on down to the studio and see what happens. and so I said, I thought to myself, "Man, this is going to be a fiasco." We got into my office, and I had a little whirlitzer piano in there. Steve Gill was an excellent piano player. He was a classically trained pianist and taught music. And he sat down, and him and Russell—I mean, it was like these two two very large egos going at each other. You know, not in a combative way, but uh, in a friendly kind of a
2: kind of a one-upmanship.
3: Yeah, kinda of jousting, but anyway, uh, Russell said, Okay, Gil, play me one of those fine classical melodies. And Steve just without missing a beat, played da 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 Like this nice classical sounding intro. I said, Well so we've got the intro, that's for sure. And and it turned out to be the melody of the verse, which starts out with There's a plane out tonight. And I swear to you I'm gonna take that flight. Don't you come to see me cry? You've seen it in a million old goodbyes. And and so we were off, man. I mean, you know, that that launched us. The lyrics just flowed out of each one of us. We all had our shot at it. Steve was pretty much carrying the melody, but it got I said, Man, we need a bridge, and we sat there and Bobby just he I think he had little havens of lyrics living in his mind, in his soul, that would just come out at a certain appropriate time. And he said, I don't know the melody. I think I came up with the melody of the bridge, but he said, Breaking up sometime is more loving than the staying up, crying nights and trying how to patch it up, knowing it was something needing giving up. And boy, I fell over in a chair. I thought, Oh, man, we got a bridge now. So I put that little melody to it. Breaking up. Sometimes it's more loving than the staying up. It's a very melodic song. I think I pitched it to Martha Sharp, who I mentioned before. She got Mel to cut it, or I think Bowen was producing him, Jimmy Bowen. I think it went number five in the country charts. It was a good song for us, and Mel told me how much he loved it. I had known Mel from way back, and he said, Buzz, I do that in my show every night. I said, I, I love that song.
2: I really like the line in the song There was me, there was you, but there never was an Us to hook on to.
3: Yeah, that was that was a closer that it's really a powerful song.
2: It's a very simple but powerful lyric, you know?
3: Yeah, and it, and you know, Mel was a great ballad singer, a great crooner himself, and he really delivered that song. He really sold it very well.
2: Buzz Tell me how you got around to starting the creative workshop.
3: Well, uh, back in 69, Bobby and I wanted to move our little office out off of Music Road. There was uh, was a bunch of break-ins going on out there, and we didn't particularly like our landlord where we were. We had a friend, Leroy Norton, who worked at the First American National Bank out in Hundred Oaks, which is right across from... The Berry Hill section of town. He pulled us over there, and he kind of whispered. He said, "Hey, they're getting ready to go commercial over in Berry Hill. You guys ought to buy uh, some property over there—one of those little houses or something." So we went over on Bransford Avenue and bought two houses, uh, back to back—one on on Bransford and one on the street behind it. But about that same time, Bobby had fallen in love with Vicky Lawrence on the Carol Burnett Show, and he, he planned to move to California. So. We broke up our partnership and I sold him my part of the one, those two lots we had bought and moved around the corner onto Azalea Place. And that's where I set up my studio. when I, I recruited Travis Turk, who had been over at uh, Spar Studios. We had worked together doing sound alike records over in a studio close to Vanderbilt, a basement studio. And that's where we actually cut the first Jimmy Buffett album, which was really a demo album, but Barnaby wanted to put it out anyway.
2: So the Creative Workshop was this totally different vibe of a recording studio back in the day, and it really is well covered in the documentary that you made about it, how you guys really fostered a collaborative musical environment, and it wasn't cut four songs in a two-hour period, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes, four songs, and you're out. It was very different vibe, and it was in that scene you more or less discovered or championed the first sound of Jimmy Buffett.
3: Yes, it, it was actually the second collection of songs. The first one, like I mentioned, was recorded over at Spar Studios, and It was a bunch of demos and Jimmy Buffett, myself, and DJ named Captain Midnight, and a couple other guys, Dave Conrad, we played tennis together. Now, the only one of us out of the four that could play tennis was Mike Shepard, who was running Barnaby Records for Andy Williams down on the road. I mentioned to him one day after tennis, I said, you know, Buffett's a singer somewhere. And he said, oh, is he really? I said, yeah, he said, bring me something. So. I took him this collection of songs and he said, Hey, I want to put it out. I said, No, wait a minute, Mike. I said, We need to go to a real studio and cut these. This is just done in our little basement place down here. He said, No, I want them like they are. So he gave us $2,500 for the whole album. And I I asked Buffett, I said, You think we ought to do it? He said, Well, I need something to sell on the road anyway. So he was starting to play colleges and touring around. And so we did it. And uh, Buffett jokes, he says, Said, I think we sold 300 records or something. I said, Yeah, if, if we sold that many, you know. As a follow up, Jimmy and I had this concept album idea called High Cumberland Jubilee about a couple lived up in the Cumberland Mountains east of Nashville and uh, they were having some problems and stuff and drug problems and different things. So we wrote these songs and we actually started recording and created workshop before it was even finished. I mean, the floors weren't in and the walls weren't done. and Travis and I couldn't wait to turn that machine on and get the recording. So the album was pretty good. We brought Bergen White in to do some strings. And once again, I did voices with him. And Jimmy and I wrote most of it. The problem was it didn't tickle Barnaby's fancy. They didn't care for it, so they didn't put it out. So it didn't come out till later on. Before the Salt. And then it came out on Jimmy's Margaritaville label called Before the Beach and did quite well.
2: You know, his fans, it's before he moved to Key West and created the so-called Gulf and Western sound and the Parrothead sound. And the it's got a very different style to it. And so his fans don't like it. It reminds me a little bit of like Bruce Springsteen's first albums and Bob Dylan's first album. It's just a different style of music than what took him to the big time. But I really enjoyed listening to it. And I really enjoyed listening to High Cumberland Jubilee. Tell me about writing that song.
3: Yeah, well, that's kind of the, uh, the theme. Well, it is the theme of the story. And um, we used kind of a rocking bluegrass beat to it I, th- I think we used bobby thompson who was the great banjo player at the time and uh, we had randy goodrum on keyboard i played a little keyboard on part of the record we had outstanding musicians on it and there was a kind of an instrumental interlude in it that's very good and then there's two pieces to the song high Cumberland jubilee there's high Cumberland jubilee and then high Cumberland jubilee reprise or something we call it it's uh, filled in with just regular commercial songs, but it's, it's a fun project. Buffett says, "You know, it was a time of music, and there was concept records." He said, "So we did a concept record. It may not have been a good concept, but we did one."
2: It's so funny to see him in in those Tashiki shirts instead of you know the sort of Caribbean multicolored shirts. It was like a different. He was in a different place. At, at that point in time, and musically he was in a different place than where he got to later. It's really an interesting time capsule.
3: It was kind of the end of the folk era for Jimmy, you know. His songs were pretty much folkish when he came to us. I tell everybody when he came, we fell in love with the person more than his music because he, he didn't really have any, in what you'd call, hits when he came up from Mobile but he had that spirit and that drive about him and that personality. But he was totally un you know, so he, he didn't fit into the Nashville scene at all. He wound up cutting several hit records there when Don Gant took over producing him. And in fact, uh, Don and Bergen, White and myself sang on five of the first albums, did background vocals for him. But he found his niche. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, the Gulf and Western sound. You know, Creative Workshop became legendary after that. You you had Dolly Parton, Jerry Reed, Merle Haggard, the Judds, the Doobie Brothers, Emmylou Harris, Olivia Newton-John. She's in the documentary, all recording there. It's pretty interesting history. A lot
3: of artists passed through those doors. And, it, you know, it's been 50 years. It was 1970 when this uh, started out. And we just recently unveiled a fence, a a wall. We call it we call it our wall of stars. There's a great artist, Scott Guyon, who had done some murals for the House of Blues down the street from us. I commissioned him to do this painting. It starts out from the left with just Travis and Jimmy and me pictured and then it goes on up through Leon Russell the Doobie Brothers. The Gatlin Brothers recorded five number one records there, and it has a portrait of Fred Foster, the great producer who produced them, and then Olivia Newton-John and Kenny Rogers and Dottie West, and Dan Penn, great songwriter, just did his new album, which is called Living on Mercy, which is just out. Sugarcane Jane, husband and wife duo, that we produced two records on them, good friends, And, and it shows Parker, my son, and his studio dog Ollie we had a, a Jack Russell that was the studio dog. And uh, just a lot of, it. It, you know, it, it we we had a nice crowd there for the opening, and there's been a lot of talent. Of course, Merle, Merle is on that wall. Merle loved that old studio.
2: Hey, so you and your two sons have some new music out. You have not stopped, Buzz, at all, creating music since you started. Two songs you wanted to talk about, Montana and... Why? I just love these songs. You're still doing it.
3: Yes. uh I, I had written Montana with the idea of, of having the, the guys come in on harmony. And also the story relates to a trip that we took with their mother back in, the, I guess, the late 80s out to Montana to a ranch. Just had a great time. And we, we were in, near Jordan, Montana. And at that time they had the free men up in the hills. Protesting the government about something or another. We spent the week there and just fell in love with the place. And it's kind of a story surrounding that. And, but the guys, um, we blend real well together. We don't sing that much together, but they fell right in on that. Taylor had sung lead. I failed to mention his version of Soldier of Love is cut 10 on the, the album, which is kind of a special arrangement that's never been done before on Soldier of Love. Taylor, my older son, has a tremendous R&B style voice that uh, really cuts through on that on that version.
2: What's it like playing with your family?
3: Always nothing like it. It's fun. We very seldom do anything live together. Parker's been real aggressive about being in the business, and uh, Taylor I don't think could quite put up with it. They both are music degree. Graduates, uh, Parker from Belmont University and Taylor from Middle Tennessee State. And they both went through the music business programs. They know about the business, you know, but we enjoy what time we have together, singing together, that's for sure.
2: The song Why, I think, is one of your real most mature songs as a songwriter. It really is a reflection on life in some ways. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song.
3: Uh, thank you. I, that song came down from heaven or wherever. It just flowed on out, and it didn't have to struggle with it. And I had a friend uh, uh, I mentioned before, Brooks Forsyth, who cut a couple of albums with us. He's a great acoustic player, and he helped me work out this little guitar lick on it. In fact, he plays on the session. And we had Sandler Vaden on guitar, who is a outstanding guitarist, and plays with Jason Isbell in the 400 unit, some good musicians on it. I never got the vocal really like I wanted it, but I felt that the vocal was a sensitive feeling enough to fit the song. We went in and did the harmonies, and it really kind of put it over the top, I thought, on the chorus. They come in with a real high whine sound. It's kind of a reflection on life. It's a little deeper than most of my songs.
2: Right, right. What are you trying to say here?
3: It says, why do we ask why anyway? Why don't we ask God to give us another day? Or just, why not ask why, but thank God for giving us yet another day? That's kind of the, the crux of it, you know.
2: We don't always get the answers why.
3: That's right, we don't, yeah.
2: Well, I have to thank you, Buzz. Can I ask you a few questions? Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of the songs you wrote on the radio?
3: That's a good question. I probably, when I heard uh, my love song for you on the air with with the casuals, because Noel Ball, as they used to say, played the grooves off of it in the vinyl days. I'd probably be driving around my old 46 Dodge when I heard it first time. There's, you know, there's nothing like that for a songwriter. And I've heard many of them say it. There's just nothing like hearing your music on the radio. I mean, it, you can get the record and put it on a record player or play a tape of it or something, but it's nothing. The
4: prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the Life MD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.
3: If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, And like when you hear it on the air and somebody's is taking the the time to uh, listen to it and like it and, and spin it or put it on the air you know it's a thrill like that never gets old
2: well i gotta thank you buzz casen this has been fantastic thank you for joining backstory song and thank you for the gift of your songwriting and your performance gifts and your recording gifts and your publishing gifts and everything you've done for all the musicians and songwriters and producers that you've worked with. You are really a real giver to the industry and we're very, very grateful for everything you've given us.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor to be with you, Doug, and just a real privilege. And I appreciate your research and your care and your interest in songwriters and, and what you do for us. And, and you, you really do your homework and it's just just a pleasure to be with you thank you thank you
1: save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon shop these deals at your local kroger today or tap the screen now to download the kroger app to save big today kroger fresh for everyone